Thanks to you at home for joining us. We have a lot to get to this evening. In Manhattan, the grand jury hearing the Trump hush money probe, that grand jury did not meet on that matter today. The New York Times reports that prosecutors leading that case were seen entering the building where the grand jury meets, suggesting that some activity may have taken place. But there are no indications that an indictment has been handed up today. We are expecting the grand jury to pick up the hearing again next week. And while all eyes have been on Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, as the nation has been watching literally his every move, special counsel Jack Smith appears to have reached a turning point when it comes to his two sprawling investigations surrounding the former president. There are signs that the special counsel, now four months into the job, may get the testimony of two of the closest people to the former president, the two people who know presumably everything when it comes to Trump, his attorney, Evan Corcoran, and his former number two in the White House, Mike Pence. Today, reporters spotted attorneys for Trump heading into the D.C. federal courthouse, where the grand jury is investigating the Mar-a-Lago documents case and the January 6th riots, where they were meeting behind closed doors. One of the special counsel's prosecutors investigating January 6th and the efforts to overturn the 2020 election was also spotted entering that building. But you know who else was there? An attorney named Emmett Flood, who represents former Vice President Mike Pence. He was spotted entering the building. We now know that attorneys for Trump, Pence and the DOJ prosecutor met behind closed doors in a sealed hearing before the D.C. chief judge and the special counsel's ongoing battle to compel Pence's testimony before that grand jury. Now, if you are wondering why Trump's attorneys were in the mix there, It's because they've claimed that executive privilege should prevent the former vice president from testifying, and they are making that case to the judge. As a reminder, Jack Smith subpoenaed Pence for his testimony back in February. And ABC News now reports that in addition to Pence's verbal testimony, the subpoena also asks for documents and communications regarding efforts to contest the 2020 election, the January 6th rally at the Ellipse, and efforts to install Trump lackey, Jeffrey Clark as acting attorney general. All of this in Trump's quest to subvert the election. For his part, Pence has called the subpoena unconstitutional and unprecedented, and he has invoked the Constitution's speech and debate clause as a way to fight it. Now, Pence and his team are looking at these sort of little-known, less-litigated constitutional provisions to prevent having to tell a grand jury what happened— And yet Pence had no problem telling ABC News this when it came to ginning up book sales on his media tour last year. I picked up the phone and the president uh, asked me where I was on the electoral count that would take place that day. And I told him, uh, despite what you issued last night from your campaign, Mr. President, you know, I've been very clear that I don't have the authority to reject votes during the electoral count or return those votes to the states. And uh, it went downhill from there. Um, The president became very irate on the phone. Uh, He he said that if that was true, that he made a mistake five years ago. Pence probably remembers that he said all that to news cameras in the American public, which may explain why The Washington Post is now reporting that aides to Pence have essentially accepted the fact that the former vice president may have to testify against the man he served in office, Donald Trump, as part of the special counsel's investigation. 
The Post also sheds light as to why special counsel Smith wants to hear from Pence. Justice Department prosecutors have sought to learn whether Trump ever acknowledged losing the election and what specific efforts he took to block the certification of the election. Prosecutors believe Pence's private conversations with Trump could shed light on either or both. And that is all fairly essential information as far as this entire investigation goes. So if Jack Smith wins this fight and gets Mike Pence to sit before the grand jury and answer questions, it will be a big development in the January 6th investigation. Meanwhile, Mr. Smith is also one step closer to hearing from Trump's attorney in the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation. The attorney caught in the middle of that probe, Evan Corcoran, was ordered to testify before the grand jury as early as tomorrow. In response to a DOJ subpoena this past May, Mr. Corcoran drafted the now infamous June statement saying that Trump's attorneys had conducted a diligent search of Mar-a-Lago and there were no more classified documents there to be found. This document has often been called a statement, but it is more than that. It is an official certification. The certification was provided to the Justice Department in lieu of official testimony by Trump's attorney. It includes serious sounding language like this. I am authorized to certify on behalf of the office of Donald J. Trump. A diligent search was conducted of the boxes that were moved from the White House to Florida. I swear or affirm that the above statements are true and correct to the best of my knowledge. Well, we now know that that wasn't the case at all. And prosecutors want to know why. The FBI found more than 100 classified documents when they searched the premises two months later. Prosecutors later asserted that finding those documents calls into serious question the representations made in the June 3rd certification and casts doubt on the extent of cooperation in this matter. In other words, perhaps obstruction of justice. An appeals court ruled this week that Evan Corcoran must provide testimony to prosecutors as well as documents and recordings. Mr. Corcoran is expected to appear before the grand jury as early as tomorrow. So Jack Smith with the one-two punch today. Well, everyone is buzzing about Alvin Bragg and the Stormy Daniels hush money probe. Donald Trump's legal headaches when it comes to the special counsel, they appear to be multiplying. Joining me now are Laura Jarrett, NBC senior legal correspondent, and Michael Moore, former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia. Thank you both for joining me. Laura? We just couldn't stop talking to you last night, so we needed more today. Um, I want to hear your assessment of of the how compelled Mike Pence will be Mm. or can be to testify here. It sounds like he's privately or his attorneys are making peace with the concept. Do you think it's likely that the vice president's going to get pulled into this? The hardest thing about this is that he has gone public with a number of different uh, interactions and um, reflections that he has had about really material events that happen both before and after the election. And yet the argument that appears that his lawyers want to be making um, is that he should be immunized, at least as to his role uh, as president of the Senate in just the sort of ministerial aspect of counting the votes, opening the envelopes and counting the votes, right? But now that he has had a Wall Street Journal article yes. and an entire book tour about this, it's going to be hard to see where is he going to draw the line. And I think that's going to be the hard argument that I imagine was front and center in front of Judge Boasberg in front of uh, the D.C. federal court today. Yeah, Michael, I, I would assume if you you're a former vice president of the United States. You have people, you have handlers, you have lawyers. And one would imagine 
that when he embarked on this book tour, there would have been some legal consideration about what he was talking about publicly on ABC News and the pages of the Wall Street Journal, as Laura points out, and what position that might put him in in terms of further investigations. Do you think that that was just not a consideration that was made? Well, I'm glad to be with you both. I, I really think he, he believed at the time that he was selling his book that he he was just on a, a media blitz and he was obviously planning to run for president. I mean, I, I, I give no credence to his argument at all. I mean, I, I'll just tell you there are a lot of cow pastures down here full of the same types of arguments, and that's where it belongs because it's just <laughs> not going to go anywhere uh, for him in, in, in this case. Um, you know, he, he did talk about it publicly. He's repeatedly talked about it publicly. And when he was trying to sell a book, he he didn't mind coming out about it. I mean, he talks about the subpoena being, you know, unprecedented and unconstitutional. Well, his refusal to honor it really is just unpatriotic. Um, there There is no viable claim at this point to, to somehow hide behind uh, the, the, these are these constitutional arguments that he's making. They just, it's just not going to go anywhere. And you certainly, you know, the, I, I don't think they're going to get anywhere with the judge. But but let's let's remember what the privilege is about. It's about a deliberative process. It's about the ability to, you know, to uh, talk through a problem uh, without worrying about having to testify about the inner workings of a problem or, or reaching a solution to some kind of national issue. Uh, it, it's not here as they were attempting to overthrow the election to try to shield those discussions from from further disclosure. It, and, and the constitutional clauses he's making about is he in the executive versus the legislative and congressional branch. I mean, that's uh, that's not going to carry the day for him either. I got to follow up on that, though, Michael. I mean, is there a world in which there's a narrowly subscribed set of um, uh conversations that Pence had in the context sure. of him being the president of the Senate that are off limits. But everything else, including conversations that happened in the Oval Office, that has nothing to do with his ministerial role in the Senate. And those are not those are not off limits. Those are the kinds of things. Yeah. In other words, there's is there some version of this resolution where Pence kind of gets to have his cake on the speech and debate clause? And that's a narrow set of conversations. But the the sort of important converse, the most relevant conversations very much are on the table as far as conversations with the grand jury or, or testament, yeah. testimony of the grand jury. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there may be a way to split the baby on, on, in, in this circumstance. And you, you may find, in fact, that there's some conversations that are, are, are protected or at least maybe off limits from the public questioning. I'm not going to say they necessarily fall under the constitutional provisions, but the judges may say, look, I'm not going to let you go into this, Mr. Prosecutor, but I am going to let you talk about that. Uh, and, you know, tell me about what happened. Tell me about what you saw. Tell me about what you observed. Tell me about what was said to you. Tell me about, you know, those types of things at, at the time that are more a uh, I guess the contemporaneous type uh, uh, observation on his part, as opposed to something that maybe he talked about uh, with a, a colleague who was in the Senate at the time uh, that he may have been standing in the chamber or something. So there's right. there may be a way to do that. And I and I can see how that could happen. But again, I mean, what what the, the special counsel is looking for is this information about what did Trump know? What were you told to do? What did you see at the time? Did you get a note or did somebody send you something? And so this is really getting at the heart of what was going on down at the other end of, of Washington, uh, away from the Capitol. Laura, um, I can't get past the fact that we're now talking about the two key witnesses mm -hmm. in these two events, right? Trump on January 6th, Evan Corcoran, the guy who's centrally involved in the Mar-a-Lago documents retention case. 
to me, those are the kind of witnesses that you would end an investigation with. And you are a creature of the DOJ, which is a compliment. You You understand perhaps how these things work in a way that I think a lot of other people don't. Do you think that this should we draw? Should we infer anything from the fact that these very high watt, high wattage, important key figures are potentially testifying in the coming days in Jack Smith's dueling uh, special counsel probes? This is certainly not the beginning of the investigation. <laughs> you, would, you wouldn't try to serve a subpoena on the former vice president of the United States as your opening solo. Right. That would not be the opening move. I think it is fair to say this is the type of thing that you would see when he feels Jack Smith feels as though he has amassed enough evidence um, and and gotten to sort of the end game where he really now needs something to close it and and sort of wrap up whatever is left. And I should also just mention, I think a court is going to be far more sympathetic to a Jack Smith than perhaps even to the January 6th committee. In typical cases, and I think Michael would agree with me on this, courts are way more likely to allow someone to testify in front of the grand jury um, in a criminal case than they are in terms of sort of just a a legislative open hearing Mm -hmm. and that type of thing. And so when congressmen are trying to get, you know, different different Trump executive executive branch um, people to testify in an open hearing, that's very different than going behind closed doors in front of a a grand jury. And I think a court, perhaps Judge Boasberg, will see what he does, but I think maybe far more sympathetic to Jack Smith's entreaties here than he perhaps would have been for Congress doing this. Let me ask you another timeline question, um, because you seem to agree that Mike Pence wouldn't be the starting gun of any investigation. Do you think these investigations, Jack Smith's probe into January 6th and Mar-a-Lago, are happening in parallel track? Because I've always thought, oh, the Mar-a-Lago thing must be further along than the January 6th case, which seems massive and unwieldy and is going to take forever. How do you see them moving down the track? Well, the facts of the Mar-a-Lago documents probe are easier, certainly, right? Except for the fact that some of the material witnesses have been caught up in all of this litigation, like Evan Corcoran. Um, But we've talked about this offline. And I've wondered about this because if you think about how the Mueller investigation went, and that's a different special counsel, yeah. but on that one, there really were just sort of two separate lines of inquiry. They had different teams. They had different volumes, you remember. Um, and so, and, and they released them at the same time. And so it may be in this case that he does one versus the other, but we just don't know. But I could see a scenario in which he does everything all at once instead of sort of staggering them. We he just, was assigned them at the same time, yeah. so maybe he ends them at the same same time. Yeah. Um, Michael, uh, Laura rightly refers to the tangle, uh, the thicket of lawyers who were involved in all of these things. Do we have this? I've been asking our our wonderful, very patient producers to make a graphic for me that shows. Yeah, we have it. OK, let's can we pull it up? These are the lawyers. We had to color code. I don't know if you can see this, Michael. This is like your Karen Matheson like, diagram. Yeah, it is like a homeland. <laughs> they, they are there are so many inv- lawyers who are involved in different cases as either counsel or witnesses. Right. Christina Bob is involved in the Jan six stuff, but she's a potential witness in classified documents. Evan Corcoran is a witness in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case, but is counsel to Trump in the Jan six case. I mean, it is a it seems to me not a lawyer that this seems kind of a nightmarish arrangement when you talk about counsel in multiple probes who are cross pollinating things as counsel or witnesses. Yeah, the only thing really surprising to me, and I could see the diagram, was that there were five lawyers willing to get involved in these cases uh, <laughs> with the former president. I mean, yeah, well. you know, I, and I think Trump has done this uh, masterfully at times, and he 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 has a way of putting people as a buffer between him and the law, and he oftentimes does that with lawyers, and you can see that with Michael 
Cohen and uh, sort of how he handled him and what went on there and what he asked him to do. And, and you know, we, we know how the story, you know, wound up there. So and, and even here with Mr. Corcoran, I mean, he's writing the letter as opposed to Trump giving the letter or Trump signing the certification because it is, in fact, his property and his residence. And he could have done that. But the lawyer did it. And so he's he builds in these degrees of separation. And when you're trying to delay things and, and one of your main tactics is to, to use a, a delay uh, to, for court systems and prosecutions and inquiries and impeachments and everything else, you just make the knot a little bigger. Uh, and, and put more strands in there that somebody has to unravel. And I think you, you, you do see that, and the diagram helps uh, with that. Um, it's it's um, I don't think at the end of the day that it shields him or that it shields Mr. Corcoran from the inquiry that he's now obviously going to have to give some information in. It's certainly not meant uh, and, and would not because you had lawyers that are involved in different cases. That doesn't prevent them from uh, talking about things that would typically be covered in the attorney-client matters if, in fact, the court finds that it might fall under something like a crime fraud exception or something else that uh, allows that testimony to come in. So uh, it's, it's not a knot that can't be untangled, but it certainly is something that uh, has caused and may cause it, it, its its fair share of delay. Uh, but I think you're seeing the prosecutors move to it. I don't, I don't think it's going to be any impediment at all for Jack Smith. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to see him come in and sort of put the – pedal down and get things moving along. Um, this this is something that this is an investigation and these investigations have taken far too long and it's good to see them moving in a track. I mean, think about this. We talk about these cases as if somehow we're trying to send a rocket to the moon. These are just criminal cases and criminal investigations. I mean, did somebody have documents they weren't allowed to have? That's a pretty simple inquiry. You may want to get witness testimony and those kinds of things, but the, 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 the facts and the the underlying allegation is 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 fairly simple. Did somebody pay, uh, uh, you know, make a payment that was illegal and recorded wrongfully on a business record in New York? That's pretty simple. Was a call made to Secretary of State in Georgia, and was there an effort to pressure somebody to change an election count? That's a pretty simple thing. So it's good to see things moving forward, and and, and I think, uh, at least in my opinion, uh, overdue. Maybe Michael Moore should be heading up the special counsel when he makes it sound so simple. <laughs> Laura Jarrett, <laughs> Michael Moore, thank you both for your time and wisdom. I sincerely appreciate it. We have so no. much to get to tonight, including the logical outcome of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's backward-looking educational policies appears to be protecting children from classical art. Plus, House Republicans are not just carrying water for Donald Trump. They appear to be weaponizing the actual federal government just for him. That is ahead. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win.
As we await the likely first ever indictment of a former U.S. president, the first indictment in American history, we are already seeing another first. Republicans in Congress, led by House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan, using their power as Congress people to act as quasi-defense attorneys for a former president in a potential criminal case. And not just in the court of public opinion, which, needless to say, is also happening. In addition to his normal Fox News hits, on Monday, Congressman Jordan took it upon himself, reportedly at the request of one of President Trump's lawyers, to send this letter demanding the testimony of Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, the prosecutor, of course, investigating Trump's alleged hush money payments. And what Congressman Jordan was asking for here for a state prosecutor to testify before Congress to lay out all of his evidence and internal communications about an ongoing criminal investigation in front of a bunch of allies of the very person that investigator might be trying to prosecute. Well, that is a five alarm fire in terms of the separation of powers. It is what Congressman Jordan himself might call the weaponization of the federal government. Now, Mr. Bragg politely declined Chairman Jordan's request this morning, saying in a letter that Bragg's office will, quote, always treat a fellow government entity with due respect and requesting a meet and confer to understand whether the committee has any legislative purpose. That sort of seems clear what the committee's purpose is. Now, unfortunately, Jim Jordan is not just some random letter writer. He is a congressman and he is the chair of the House Judiciary Committee. He has subpoena power and he is likely to at least try to use it. So exactly how District Attorney Bragg responds to these House Republicans and how Democrats respond, all of that really matters because this is likely just the first indictment against President Trump. The odds are pretty good that the leading Republican candidate for president in 2024, that he will be actively fighting multiple criminal indictments while on the campaign trail. And that candidate seems to think so, too. Today, Trump called for all of the prosecutors in all of the investigations into him. He called for them to be removed from office. On Alvin Bragg specifically, Trump both referred to the black prosecutor as a Soros-backed animal and referred to his office as the Gestapo. And Trump used that charge language while criticizing calls for his followers to respond peacefully to this potential indictment. Trump is trying to reframe this narrative from being an investigation into his alleged crimes, and he is instead trying to make it an investigation into the investigators. And Republicans in Congress are using the power of the federal government to help him. Joining us now is Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin, ranking member of the House Oversight Committee. Congressman Raskin, thank you so much for being here. I would just You are a scholar of the law. We have heard the phrase investigate the investigators many times in the Trump era, but this feels different. And is this even legal for Jim Jordan to ask Alvin Bragg to come before Congress in the middle of an open investigation? Well, let's start with this. I mean, we actually have jurisdictional authority over the Department of Justice in the House Judiciary Committee, but it is very well established that Even there, with the DOJ, where there's real jurisdictional oversight responsibility, that we cannot intervene in an ongoing case. Then you take it from the federal level to the state and local level, where we have no jurisdictional power 
over state investigative and prosecutorial authorities. And this is just the unheard of and uh, outrageous. Uh, it's clearly an attempt to elevate Donald Trump completely above the law, completely above the Constitution. And that's what's so scary about this. The GOP has turned into a messianic cult of personality around one guy who has proven himself to be a one-man crime wave, and they've all wrapped themselves in their careers and their destinies around Donald Trump. I, you know, I, I, it is staggering to me that Trump's lawyer, Joe Tacopino, reportedly suggested that the House uh, Judiciary Committee do this. And they have in turn followed suit into what a, a morass that you, I think, rightfully uh, suggest could be unconstitutional. And then there's the reality of if they actually did this. You told The Washington Post, and I, again, I agree with this, that it could completely backfire, even if they managed to get Alvin Bragg up to the Hill. Can you talk about the ways in which Democrats see this as a potential uh, danger zone for Republicans if they do, in fact, go through with all of this? Well, Alex, you know, the, the emperor has no clothes at any level. I mean, during the impeachment trial, the rhetoric of all the Republicans was, well, if there's a real problem, you don't need to impeach and convict him. Just prosecute him when he leaves office. That's fine. Now all of the prosecutors are saying there are these criminal offenses we want to research. And they say, how dare you prosecute a former president, someone who has put himself forward to run for president again? I mean, they will devise any argument to try to guarantee the total immunity and impunity of one Donald Trump. Uh, so they're taking us into completely unknown territory as a society today. I do wonder, I mean, when you talk about terra incognito and new territory, it's not just what Trump is asking Congress to do in this sort of um, extrajudicial kind of fashion. It's also the threats that he is uh, directing at prosecutors and in particular the Manhattan District Attorney calling him a Soros-backed animal. And then today, uh, the former president shared a post on Truth Social that is a link to an article that shows a picture of Trump holding a bat next to Alvin Bragg's face. I mean, does that rise to the level of a threat of violence against uh, a prosecutor? Well, some of the people who are in the D.C. jail right now uh, as January 6th convicts or uh, suspects are people who wielded baseball bats and batons and flagpoles and metal poles and other weapons like that. So Donald Trump is obviously sending a not very subliminal, subtle signal uh, to his uh, most avid followers out there. Um, I, I trust that the that the good district attorney has sufficient security, but it's a very dangerous moment when you have people at his level giving license to violence and to uh, violent attacks, including on law enforcement. I mean, this is something that we're going to be dealing with tomorrow when Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to be leading a delegation from uh, the House Oversight Committee to go to the D.C. jail to visit the January 6th defendants uh, who she describes as political prisoners mm. like Alexander Solzhenitsyn or Nelson Mandela in South Africa. Uh, or Navalny today. These are not political prisoners. Um, there are 20 of them there. 17 of them have been charged with assaulting federal officers, including with baseball bats and batons and Confederate flagpoles and uh, spraying them with 
noxious chemicals and so on. Those are the people that they're going to visit tomorrow. And by the way, uh, they are being treated just fine in D.C. jail. There are two facilities there. There's the central de- detention facility and there's a central treatment facility. They are in by far the better facility uh, with open area. They're guaranteed four or five hours a day outside of their cells. They get to go outside, weather permitting. They have access to recreation. They have computer tablets available to them for more than 12 hours a day um, in, a, in an institution that's been fully accredited by the American uh, Correctional Association. So um, they've got it pretty good uh, as um, prisoners and uh, detainees and suspects go. Now, some of them have still not pled guilty yet or been convicted of anything. They're entitled to the presumption of innocence. But a lot of the people that they're visiting tomorrow, I think eight or nine of them, have already pled guilty to serious charges like assaulting federal officers. And all of them are being charged with very serious offenses like uh, seditious conspiracy, conspiracy to assault federal officers, um, you know, staying in um, in an excluded facility with a dangerous weapon, uh, disobeying the officers, um, you know, wielding weapons against officers and so on. So, you know, my Republican colleagues don't talk about um, any single case. They will not name any of these people because they don't want the media looking into what they actually did. But I highly um, commend to you a report that uh, was done by Just Security, which goes through the cases of the people who are actually there. And the media should keep that in mind when they're touring the facility tomorrow of these so-called political prisoners. And by the way, while they're calling for the release of political prisoners, I would love it if Marjorie Taylor Greene and Chairman Comer and Lauren Boebert would call for the release of Alexei Navalny, who's a real political prisoner um, held by the war criminal Vladimir Putin in Russia right now for his stand against the corruption of the Russian government. Will they call for the release of a real political prisoner, uh, Mr. Navalny? I challenge them to do that while they're calling for the release of many of these people who've already been convicted of violently assaulting our officers. I think we know whether they are going to defy Putin and call for Navalny's release, but I sincerely appreciate A, the invocation of Alexei Navalny's name and the work he has done to try and bring justice and transparency to Russia, and also B, the invitation for Republicans to do the right thing. Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin, always good to see you. Thanks so much for your time tonight. When we come back, when we come back, explosive new reporting about how Chris Senator Kirsten Sinema really actually feels about the Democratic Party she left behind and what Democrats are prepared to do about her. Plus, how did masterpieces of Renaissance art lead to the firing of a school principal? The answer is, isn't it always Florida? We'll explain coming up next. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. 
Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. In the name of parental rights, parents, send your kids out of the room or avert their eyes. What I'm about to show you might upset your children. It might frighten your family. So I'll give you a moment. Okay, are you ready? This is a 17-foot-tall statue of David, made by one of the greatest artists of the Renaissance, Michelangelo, in the early 1500s. Arguably one of the most famous sculptures in the world. And yes, for the record, David is totally nude. More than a million people visit the Statue of David every year. It is the most iconic piece in one of the most visited museums in Florence in Italy. And David's nudity comes with a bit of history. Soon after Michelangelo completed that masterpiece, he also made the Christ the Redeemer statue in Rome and the creation of Adam Fresco for the Sistine Chapel. Both of those works of art are also featuring nude subjects. When the Catholic Church caught wind of all the nudity, the Church banned it, launching the fig leaf campaign of art censorship. Some members of the Vatican called for the figure of Adam on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. They called for it to be censored. Nude figures in Michelangelo's other fresco there, The Last Judgment, those nude figures got underpants. His Christ the Redeemer statue got a permanent bronze girdle. And his renowned statue of David got a fig leaf. So that was the 16th century. Sometime around the 20th century, David's detachable fig leaf was finally removed. According to some historians, that happened in 1912. Now, today, in the 21st century, a school board in Florida appears to be channeling that 16th century fig leaf campaign. A charter school in the state capital called Tallahassee Classical. The school began teaching Michelangelo's masterpieces to its sixth graders, meeting a school mandate to teach kids in that grade about the Renaissance. But one parent complained that the lesson, which included Michelangelo's David and the creation of Adam, along with Botticelli's Birth of Venus, that parent complained that the lesson was pornographic. Two other parents complained that they were not notified in advance that the lesson included nudity that might upset their kids. Seemingly inspired by Governor Ron DeSantis's parental rights slash don't say gay legislation, that Tallahassee Charter School Board passed a rule last month requiring two weeks advance notice for parents of any curriculum that is potentially controversial. The chairman of the school's board who wants Tallahassee Classical to be on the cutting edge of DeSantis's education agenda, he said parental rights are supreme, and that means protecting the interests of all parents, whether it's 1, 10, 20, or 50. In this case, the interests of the three parents who spoke up about Michelangelo's scandalous masterpieces, that was apparently enough to force the school's principal out of her job. Last week, the school's board voted that the principal would be fired if she did not resign over this Renaissance history lesson. In a statement released after news of her ouster was published, 
The principal said the chairman of the school's board was more concerned about litigation and appeasing a small minority of parents rather than trusting my expertise as an educator for more than 25 years. The thing is, Tallahassee Classical might actually already be on the cutting edge of Governor DeSantis's education policies, because just a couple of weeks ago, the Florida legislature introduced a series of education bills to expand the state's parental rights don't say gay law, which bans instruction in public schools on sexual orientation and gender identity and age inappropriate content like nudity. Those, those regulations, which are currently in effect through third grade, and they are now seeking to extend those regulations for older students as well. The governor's board of education is now considering its own expansion of the law through 12th grade. Teachers who violate the board's proposed rule could be suspended or have their teaching licenses revoked. The state board of education will vote on the proposed rule next month. So get your fig leaves ready. We have still more ahead tonight. One of her colleagues calls her the biggest egomaniac in the Senate. How does the Democratic Party handle the problem of Senator Kirsten Cinema? That is next. Last year, a writer at Slate was looking through Facebook's online resale marketplace when she came across a pair of designer shoes for sale from an unlikely source. Quote, it's 11 a.m. on a Tuesday and I'm exchanging Facebook messages with Arizona's Senator Kirsten Cinema about a lightly used pair of Badgley Mishka heels. Whatever you think of a U.S. senator reselling her shoes on Facebook, it is worth noting the time mentioned there, 11 a.m. on a Tuesday. That is right around the time that Senate Democrats hold their weekly caucus lunch to discuss important legislative matters during the week ahead. Now, listen to what the newly independent Senator Cinema has been saying behind closed doors about those Democratic lunches, according to a new report from Politico. Quote, those lunches were ridiculous, Cinema told a small group of Republican lobbyists at a reception in Washington this year in explaining why she had stopped attending her caucus's weekly luncheons. Cinema boasted that she had better uses of her time than those, quote, dumb lunches. Better uses of her time, like, I don't know, selling used designer shoes to strangers? And according to Politico, it was more than just long lunches that Senator Cinema complained about to those Republican lobbyists. During the private meeting, Cinema reportedly boasted that she had helped block tax increases for the wealthy. She derided Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and she raised a middle finger when talking about White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain. It is that kind of bold self-satisfaction that led one moderate Democrat to tell Politico she is the biggest egomaniac in the Senate. All of this is part of what has become Kirsten Sinema's new brand. The progressive-turned-moderate-turned-independent senator has taken on a new role as the defender of America's wealthy financial elite, what you might call the private equity class. As Politico notes, it's hard to overstate Cinema's closeness with private equity in particular. She spent part of her 2020 summer recess interning at a Sonoma winery owned by an executive in the industry. One senior administration official said they've concluded the way to win Cinema's vote on a crucial agency nominee is to have private equity executives weigh in with her. And after her taste of high finance on the fundraising circuit, she's become like the Episcopal priest in the humble rectory, who was surrounded by money in his pews and wanted a cut. Joining us now is Jamel Bowie, New York Times opinion columnist and co-host of the podcast Unclear and Present Danger. Jamel, I know that you read this story much like I did, and I, I just want you... <laughs> I, 
my eyes, I had to put them back in my head a couple times. One of the things that I found most disturbing, perhaps with George Santos in my rearview mirror, is the way in which it seems increasingly like higher office is being seen by certain people as a springboard to personal wealth, like a kind of legal grift they can pull to rake in cash at some point. I mean, do you see that happening here or is this more Kirsten Cinema's, Cinema's particular strange psychology around money? You know, I think that it's always been the case that there have been people who have seen higher office or public office generally as a pathway to self-enrichment. But, and this is going to sound a little crazy, but in the past, those people were often a little less obvious about it and still maybe had some, some interest something they wanted to pursue, whether that was personal political power, whether that was simply winning for their party, whether that was accomplishing some sort of project. These things were kind of in dialogue with the desire for self-enrichment. And what is so striking about Senator Sinema is first the utter absence of shame about her desire to ingratiate herself with private equity, exec- private equity executives and sort of the, the heights of the American financial system and her apparent disinterest in actually doing anything beyond assisting that class of Americans, that she's more than willing to obstruct large parts of the Democratic Party agenda, the agenda that she ran on in 2018 in order to accomplish these goals for you know, Jamel, I, I think you're so right to point out the shamelessness in all of this and the sense in which she thinks other people should be like her. I mean, in the story, she points, she says she's kind of amazed that other senators haven't taken the narrow, narrow uh, majority that the Democrats hold in the Senate to offer themselves up as the most important votes in the Senate and to similarly, you know, basically hold hostage the party for demands that are untethered to any particular policy agenda, but are completely self-serving. Do you think there's a risk that people look at Cinema's example of impunity and selfishness and say, oh, I want to be like that, too. I like the power that comes along with being the irascible, you know, swing vote, if that's what you want to call her. No, I don't I don't think so. Whoever was in the Senate Democratic Caucus who called um, cinema an egomaniac, I think that's really right, because that is the view of the egomaniac. Other people, their other colleagues, even if they may have occasionally desired when to act in that role, may also understand that they are part of a collective effort. And so if they want to further the collective effort, barring some extraordinary desire that they have, they might suppress some of the things they want to do in favor of that collective effort. I'm saying this as if it's like a novel idea, but we teach this in team sports, right? Like <laughs> this is this is what you're supposed to learn when you're 8, 10, 14 years old playing soccer or football or whatever. And the senator from Arizona doesn't seem to have picked up the lesson. I just wonder what Democrat, what you think the Democratic play should be, because in some ways they need, I mean, not in some ways, they need her vote, right, to pass anything. 
Um, and yet she's out there, you know, stomping grapes with private equity investors and only listening to them when cases need to be made about must pass legislation. So what do you think Democrats do in the meantime? Well, I think it's clear that the strategy so far has been to kind of just like stay on her good side, humor her, that sort of thing. Uh, but you'll notice that she's up for re-election next year. Uh, there's no real indication uh, at this point that anyone in the Senate Democratic Caucus or Senate Democratic leadership intends to campaign for her independent bid. Uh, she is clearly hoping that the Arizona Democratic Party holds off on putting off a nominee for fear of splitting the vote three ways and possibly electing a Republican, possibly electing Carrie Lake, for example. But right now, in three-way polling involving a hypothetical Democratic candidate, a hypothetical Republican candidate, and cinema, she's at the not only is she at is she, is she at the bottom, but the Democratic candidate is at the top. And so, whatever her strategy or, or hope seems to be for negotiating the politics of this, may not be playing out the way she hopes. Now, it's possible that it will next year, a long time before. The vote is held in November 2024. But I think she is playing a very risky game politically, electorally, and it's not one that I that necessarily going to play out in her favor. Yeah, it's a it's curious political strategy being the candidate of the explicitly the candidate of the private equity class. <laughs> Jamel Bowie, my right. friend, it's great to see um, you. Um, Thanks. Um, Thanks for your time. I should say of the, of the least of the least popular people in the country. Thank exactly. You. Exactly. Thank you, my friend. That is our show for this evening. We'll see you again tomorrow.